Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A poker chip singed in a Las Vegas inferno. There is a ball of flame that shoots through the casino. A document at the heart of an infamous financial scam. If one goes down and looks at the signature... The bells go off. And a sword believed to make its owner impervious to enemy fire. He had been protected by the hand of providence. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. The southern port city of New Orleans is distinguished by its diverse architecture and festive celebrations. And just behind Bourbon Street is the historic New Orleans Collection. This unique institution catalogs the city's rich cultural traditions and features a sterling silver serving set, an ornate casket, and elegant evening wear. But according to senior librarian Pamela Arsenault, there is one unassuming artifact linked to a chilling time in the city's storied history. It has an illustrated cover. There is one person seated at the piano looking over her shoulder with a very frightened look on her face. And it has music notes on the inside. The horrifying tale this music tells is alluded to in its title, The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. So who was the Axeman? And how did he terrorize New Orleans? 1918, New Orleans is the home of the Maggio family. 
brothers Jake and Andrew share a home with their brother Joseph and his wife Catherine. On May 23rd, in the middle of the night, Jake and Andrew are startled awake. The brothers heard groans and moans and noises of pain. Unsure of the source of the strange sounds, they decide to check on Joseph and his wife. They opened the door to the bedroom and saw Catherine Maggio lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Joseph was still alive, but had a horrible head wound and collapsed and died soon after. Police arrive and examine the scene. The point of entry seemed to be the back door. A panel of the door was chiseled out, allowing access into the back bedroom. Inside the house, they discover the weapon that inflicted the fatal wounds, the couple's axe. Investigators begin searching for a suspect. But with no further leads, the case is left open. Then, two weeks later, another couple falls victim to a second brutal attack under almost identical circumstances. The perpetrator again got in through the back door, hit both of his victims in their heads, and slipped away. Again, the killer wielded a weapon he found in the house, an axe. It started to appear that New Orleans was under siege by an axe-wielding fiend. The newspapers run with the horrific stories and dubbed the unknown assailant the Axeman. Although the city is on high alert, the Axeman's reign of terror continues. Over the next year, five more victims fall prey to the ruthless murderer. Police determine that they're dealing with a serial killer, but are no closer to identifying the perpetrator. Then, on March 16, 1919, the case takes a surprising turn. A local paper publishes a letter sent from someone claiming to be the notorious killer. In the letter, he announces that he is not human, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest pits of hell. The Axeman states that at 12.15 a.m. the following Tuesday, he will strike again. But surprisingly, he then proposes a rather unusual way of avoiding his murderous wrath. Every person shall be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. One thing is certain. Those persons who do not jazz it on Tuesday night will get the axe. The axe man. Desperate to ward off this axe-wielding fiend, people across the city scramble to plan musical gatherings and stock up on jazz tunes. New Orleanians meet this challenge by throwing parties. Then, on that fateful Tuesday night, New Orleanians nervously assemble. As the Axeman's deadline approaches, the sound of jazz can be heard wafting through the city streets. As the clock approaches 12.15, the city holds its breath, but the musicians play on. These people were playing jazz to save their lives. Then, 
The deadline passes, seemingly without incident. But has the entire city been spared? The next morning after the parties were over, people realized that the Axeman had been true to his word. There were no murders attributed to an Axeman in New Orleans that night. The city rejoices. It seems Jazz has staved off the madman. Over the course of the next year, the Axeman would go on to attack three more victims before suddenly disappearing. In the wake of the frightening events, a local jazz composer named Joseph John Davila pens a song to capitalize on the Crescent City's obsession with the enigmatic killer. He comes up with the mysterious Axeman's jazz. The new score is a success reminding all who hear it of what was once a terrifying time. And although the tale lives on through Davila's tune, nearly a century later, the identity of the Axeman remains a mystery. Las Vegas, Nevada is famous for its bright neon, scorching temperatures, and tourist attractions like the nearby Hoover Dam. But just a short drive from the Strip is an institution that tells the story of this region's transformation from a frontier settlement to a gambling mecca, the Clark County Museum. Here on its sprawling campus, visitors can explore a replica of a ghost town, as well as the actual candlelight wedding chapel, which once played host to thousands of quickie weddings. But amidst these oversized exhibits is one very small and seemingly ordinary artifact. It's round, it's only about an inch and a half in diameter. The sort of piece that anybody would think of as just common. But a closer look at this poker chip reveals its seared plastic edges. According to museum administrator Mark Hall Patton, it's a reminder of one of the darkest days in Las Vegas history. It ties very directly to an amazing tragedy that went on to completely transform the United States. To what horrific disaster did this simple poker chip bear witness? And how did it change the country forever? Las Vegas, Nevada, November 21st, 1980. It's morning at the MGM Grand, one of the city's most opulent buildings. Just after 7 a.m., a hotel employee notices smoke coming from a restaurant called The Deli, which is located next to the casino. He walks around the corner and sees a wall of flame behind one of the deli counters. He calls security and says, call the fire department, we have a fire. It takes only moments for the fire department to arrive, but it's already too late. Within a couple of minutes, there is a ball of flame that, that shoots through the casino. There are people that are actually in the casino. They don't have a chance. With the casino engulfed in flames, all thoughts turn to the approximately 4,500 hotel guests in the floors above. But the fire department's nine-story ladder can't reach those trapped in a towering 26-story hotel. 
You've got thousands of people that need to be evacuated and no way to do it. By 8.30 a.m., 20 helicopters are dispatched to the site. And they were pulling hundreds of people off the roof of the MGM Grand. They'd, they'd ferry them down to the ground and then go back and get more. By 9 a.m., firefighters have the inferno under control. And rescue workers try to make sense of the human cost of this tragic disaster. There are 679 injured and 85 dead. Since only a handful of people were gambling at the time of the fire's early morning outbreak, relatively few bodies are found on the casino floor. The real death toll occurs on the floors above in the hotel portion of the MGM Grand. In fact, of the 85 killed, 61 died in the hotel towers. Now, as Las Vegas reels from the worst fire in its history, investigators want to know, how did this blaze spread so quickly? And why did the majority of the deaths occur so far from the source of the fire? It's 1980, Las Vegas, Nevada. A devastating fire has swept through the ground floors of the MGM Grand, leaving 679 people injured and 85 dead. But if the fire itself was restricted to the lower floors, then why did the majority of the deaths occur in the hotel tower? When the MGM Grand opened in 1973, it was the most lavish building on the Strip. But in the early 70s, the fire code was far more lenient than it is today. It didn't call for sprinklers in casinos or other 24-hour occupied areas. The idea was that people were there 24-7. So if there was a fire, somebody would be there to see it, and they would put it out. And like the casino, the deli was originally open around the clock. But its hours had long been scaled back, leaving the restaurant completely empty when the fire broke out. That gave the window the fire needed to get started. But why did so many deaths occur in the MGM's hotel towers, far beyond the reach of the flames? The answer lies on the casino floor where only a few items, including this poker chip in the collection of the Clark County Museum, are salvaged. And when items like this burned, they created the conditions that contributed to the tragic death toll. Toxicology reports show that victims on the tower's high floors died from inhaling carbon monoxide and cyanide, two byproducts of the burning plastic plexiglass and polyurethane in the casino below. As these gases were released, they were sucked up by the ducts and empty columns in the building's structure and funneled into hallways and guest rooms, two dozen stories above the blaze. These acted as large chimneys. Ultimately, the legacy of the MGM Grand Fire was a greater awareness of the dangers of smoke inhalation and carbon monoxide poisoning as well as an overall strengthening of fire codes across the United States. And today, 
a reminder of the tragedy that transformed the country's approach to fire safety can be found on the seared edges of this poker chip here in the Clark County Museum. Oberlin, Ohio is home to the renowned liberal arts college of the same name. And on this stately campus, the Oberlin College archives contain troves of documents related to this city's 179-year-old history. But as historian John Grabowski can attest, there's one item in this collection that tells a tale bigger than its small size may suggest. The piece of paper is about two by six inches in dimension. It's a light brown, it's aged slightly, it's written in ink. At first glance, it wouldn't get noticed, but if one looked at the date and then looked at the amount, then it becomes something really different because the amount is so significant. But this extraordinary figure is just the beginning of the story. If one goes down and looks at the signature, the bells go off. The name signed at the bottom of this paper belongs to one of the wealthiest men in American history, Andrew Carnegie. How did this piece of paper and the famous signature on the bottom trigger a scandal so enormous that it shook the very foundation of American society? 1903, Cleveland. A flamboyant socialite named Cassie Chadwick, the wife of Dr. Leroy Chadwick, has made a name for herself in social circles for her extravagant spending and opulent lifestyle. But the source of her wealth does not lie with her husband. According to Cassie Chadwick, her fortune comes from her estranged father. Chadwick is purportedly the illegitimate daughter of one of the wealthiest men in the United States. The steel tycoon, philanthropist, and New York City resident, Andrew Carnegie. Her story about her relationship with Carnegie is that he's come around and he's now taking care of one of the sins of his past. As proof of her claim, Chadwick presents a series of documents like this one, called promissory notes, signed documents similar to a check that contain a written promise to pay a sum of money to the bearer of the note at a specified date. The notes Chadwick produces are signed by Andrew Carnegie, promising her enormous sums of money. And when these notes are seen, they're the evidence of the truth. But there's one small snag. Because Carnegie's notes promise Chadwick a share of his wealth at a much later date, she is unable to cash them in. So instead, Cassie Chadwick uses the notes as guarantees to secure massive loans from area banks. When she walks into banks, she has collateral in hand. One institution, Citizens National Bank of Oberlin, gives Chadwick her biggest loan. She manages to get nearly a quarter of a million dollars. Then, in November of 1904, nearly two years after securing her first loan, Chadwick receives yet another from a banker in Boston. But when he learns how much she has already borrowed from Ohio banks, he has second thoughts. He asks for his money back, and Cassie can't pay him back. In fact, Chadwick has spent nearly every dollar she's ever had. And the news that the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie can't repay her loans spreads like wildfire. 
Anybody who is holding a note from Cassie Chadwick gets very, very nervous. That includes the depositors of Citizens National Bank of Oberlin, who realize that the bank has loaned Chadwick their money, money it cannot get back. There are not enough assets to pay back depositors to the bank. The bank collapses. It fails. That collapse propels the tale of the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie into the American spotlight. What had started maybe as a local story in Ohio and in Boston becomes a national story. And the news permeates the the walls of the Carnegie Mansion on Fifth Avenue. Then Andrew Carnegie himself makes a stunning announcement. Carnegie issues a statement. I have never heard of or saw Mrs. Chadwick. Carnegie had a reputation as an ethical, honest, straightforward guy. Most Americans take Carnegie at his word. But now the nation wants to know, who is Cassie Chadwick? And how did she get these notes? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's 1904. For two years, Ohio socialite Cassie Chadwick has been scamming banks out of millions of dollars by claiming she's the illegitimate daughter of steel tycoon Andrew Carnegie. But when Carnegie announces that Cassie Chadwick is a fraud, people begin to wonder who she really is. After banks alert them to the unfolding financial disaster, Federal authorities arrest Cassie Chadwick on suspicion of fraud, and they begin to piece together the real details of her background. 
The tale begins in 1896 in Cleveland. A woman by the name of Cassie Hoover is operating a business of ill repute. One of her clients is a wealthy widower, Dr. Leroy Chadwick. The two fall in love and later marry, catapulting Cassie from Cleveland's seedy underbelly into its upper crust. She spends thousands on jewelry, clothing, and luxury items. Her compulsive buying is a symptom of, of trying to compete and trying to show that she's as good as anybody else. But she quickly runs through her husband's modest fortune. So she develops a devious scheme. Pretend to be the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. Chadwick forges Andrew Carnegie's signature and produces fake promissory notes like this one and uses them as collateral to secure loans totaling over $1.5 million. That's $35 million in today's money. That's an enormous, enormous scam. And had it not been for one suspicious Boston banker, her scheme might have raked in even more money. At the trial that ensues, Andrew Carnegie notes the most ironic piece of the entire con. He said the whole scandal could have been avoided if somebody had bothered to ask me. Cassie Chadwick is found guilty of conspiracy to defraud a national bank and is sentenced to 10 years in prison. But in 1907, just two years after her trial, she dies at the age of 50. And today... This forged promissory note sits in the Oberlin College archives as a reminder of a cunning woman, a wealthy tycoon, and one of the 20th century's most infamous financial scams. Amidst the expansive farmland of northeast Minnesota is the city of Warren, home to the Marshall County Historical Society Museum. The collection aims to preserve the traditions of life in the Midwest and features a unique assortment of vehicles, including a turn-of-the-century Hart-Parr tractor and a 1912 Maxwell. But there's one car here that, according to historian Kent Broughton, tells a story that is literally out of this world. People heard about it, and they want to see if it's real or not. It is a brown metallic Ford LTD patrol car built in 1977. But it's not the vehicle's make or model that sets it apart. It's the improbable event it has witnessed. What unearthly force did this patrol car encounter? August 27, 1979. Val Johnson is a well-respected deputy with the Marshall County Sheriff's Office. For almost three years, he's been patrolling the quiet county roadways around Warren. At 1.40 a.m., Johnson is driving along an empty stretch of highway about 20 miles northwest of Warren. Suddenly, he glimpses something about three miles south that will change his life in ways he can't imagine. Former police officer Michael Johnson was on the force at the time. He was seeing some type of a light close to the road that caught his attention. As he gets closer, he notices something unusual. The light seems to be hovering just three feet off the ground. 
This is like no aircraft Johnson has ever seen. Then the light begins moving rapidly. And suddenly Johnson realizes it's coming right at him. In an instant, he's surrounded. It was very, very bright. It blinded him. And before he can determine what's happening, Johnson blacks out. Forty minutes later, he comes to. Woozy, he radios in to the Marshall County Sheriff's Office, asking for backup. 407, what's the problem? I don't know. Someone just hit my car. The sheriff and another officer rushed to the scene. The responding deputy asked him what happened. All he remembers is the sound of glass breaking and then his brakes locking up. When the officers examine the car, they discover some perplexing clues. The windshield is shattered and the inside headlight on the driver's side is broken while the others remain intact. But the damage is not limited to the front of the vehicle. The rooftop antenna was bent at a 60-degree angle, and the rearmost antenna was bent at 90 degrees. That's what was really strange. Then the officers begin searching for signs of a collision. But all they can find is broken glass from the headlight. Something struck him, yet there was no debris to see. There was nothing that he would have hit. The officers are baffled. What was it that struck Johnson's patrol car and knocked him unconscious? In 1979, Warren, Minnesota deputy Val Johnson is on routine night patrol in his squad car when he encounters something baffling. A blinding light that damages his vehicle and knocks him out cold. So what could have caused this bizarre incident? In the wake of the mysterious crash, the sheriff's department considers the possible causes of the accident. One theory is that Johnson was blinded by the oncoming lights of a vehicle that struck his car. But there is no evidence of direct impact. In a normal car accident, the damage would have been more prevalent, like a smashed fender if you'd hit some other vehicle. But this, the damage was from the front of the car to the rear of the car. Others believe Johnson may have seen a small airplane, but the Federal Aviation Administration has no records of planes in the area at the time of the incident. While his memory remains hazy, Val Johnson has an inkling of what he may have encountered. He did say that he felt he was coming upon something that somebody didn't want him to see and wanted to, like, neutralize him. Some even begin to wonder... Could Johnson have stumbled upon an alien spacecraft? It was something that was beyond their realm of understanding, so they started making some phone calls. The sheriff seeks the help of Alan Hendry, an astronomer and investigator for the International Center for UFO Studies. Hendry flies up to Warren the next day and looks at the car, studies the damage, and thinks it's very unusual. Determined to find an answer, Hendry brings in a glass expert from the Ford Motor Company who makes a shocking discovery. The glass in the windshield was shattered in such a way that they said a force went in and came back out the same way. 
Hendry then calls upon experts from the engineering firm Honeywell to examine the antenna. They could not find any breaks in the metal. They didn't believe the antennas were bent by being hit by an object because there was no signs of any impact. Honeywell determines that the bends were caused by a high-velocity air blast over the fast-moving car. But what could have created such a powerful blast of air? Despite the compelling evidence, Hendry cannot offer a definitive conclusion. He declares it a truly anomalous case with unusual clues. The source of the light that surrounded Johnson's vehicle remains unidentified. An unidentified flying object. There's something out there that's unexplained. This still has people baffled. And over 30 years later, curiosity seekers still flock to the Marshall County Historical Society Museum, where Johnson's vehicle remains. Now known as the UFO car, it offers a physical link to one of the nation's most bizarre and unexplained encounters. Boston, Massachusetts. Nestled inside this historic metropolis is a grand and stately institution that pays tribute to the city's revolutionary roots. The Boston Athenaeum. Founded in 1807, it provides visitors with a world-class collection of art, sculptures, and lithographs. But there's one item kept under lock and key by curator of rare books and manuscripts, Stanley Cushing, that is only available to those who make a specific request to see it. It lives in our locked stack in a custom-made box. It is six by nine inches. And it's covered in a soft-feeling leather. And printed on the cover is a mysterious epigram written in an ancient language. It says, Hic liber waltonus cute compactus est. What macabre secret does this curious Latin phrase reveal about this tiny book and the shocking tale that lies within. 1833. Boston is a thriving port. But it's also a haven for criminals. One of the city's most prolific crooks is James Allen. Allen, who also goes by the alias George Walton, has gained a notorious reputation for robbing Boston's wealthy elite. If you had a crime, you might think of, oh, maybe it was James Allen who did it. Allen's trademark crime is also his most basic, holding people up at gunpoint. And he has his sights set on one particularly wealthy local businessman. There was a man that he was watching named John Fenno, who had what seemed like a fat wallet. So one day, Allen waits patiently on a rural road in Chelsea. When he sees Fenno and his business partner approach, he makes his move. All of a sudden, James Allen leapt out and aimed his pistol at them. Fenno's terrified companion flees in panic. But then, things take a sudden and unexpected turn. Instead of handing over his wallet, Fenno leapt on James Allen. James realized he had to use his gun. Fenno falls to the ground, and Allen makes his getaway. 
But moments later, Fenno is shocked to discover that miraculously, the bullet ricocheted off his suspender buckle. Shaken from his encounter, but imbued with resolve, John Fenno vows to catch the man who attacked him. Mr. Fenno wasn't going to put up with this. The businessman goes to the police. His description of the man who nearly killed him leads them directly to James Allen, who is promptly arrested. Allen is tried and sentenced to 20 years in prison for the attempted robbery of John Fenno. Languishing in prison, Allen contracts tuberculosis and his health rapidly deteriorates. As he contemplates his imminent death, he becomes obsessed with the man who thwarted his life of crime. He said he wanted to meet the man that had stood up to him. He was sorry for some of the things he did, was sorry for attacking Venno with the gun. Sensing an opportunity to reform his attacker, Fenno accepts the invitation. And in the face-to-face exchange, the businessman urges Allen to repent for his crimes. The meeting has a huge impact on the ailing thief, prompting him to write a memoir of his life. Perhaps he saw it as a cautionary tale for other young people who might get into crime. Then... Soon after composing his memoirs, James Allen succumbs to tuberculosis and dies at the age of 28. But the tale of one of Boston's most infamous criminals has one final shocking twist. Less than four years into a sentence for the robbery of a man named John Fenno, infamous Boston criminal James Allen dies in prison. But prior to his death, Allen composed his memoirs, leaving a legacy that will extend far beyond mere words on a page. July, 1837. As he lies on his deathbed, James Allen makes one final request to the prison warden that he hopes will secure his place in history that a copy of his memoirs be presented to Mr. Fenno, and that was to be particularly bound. And the warden obliges. Upon his death, James Allen's body is taken to Massachusetts General Hospital. There, a doctor removes skin from the deceased highwayman's back. It's used to ensure that the story of Allen's criminal exploits will be remembered unlike any other. That skin was then tanned and used by a local bookbinder. When his work is complete, the bookbinder delivers a copy of the memoir to John Fenno, courtesy of James Allen, a.k.a. George Walton. When Fenno reads the phrase on the cover, he is shocked by the grim nature of the gift he has received. The Latin on the front board, Hic Liber Waltonus, Cute compactus est really translates as this book is bound in the skin of Walton. For years, the gruesome relic remains in the Fenno family library until it is donated to the Athenaeum in 1905. Today, this macabre reminder of the life of one of the city's most notorious criminals 
remains locked inside the Boston Athenaeum, waiting for curious visitors to discover its shocking secret for themselves. Columbia, South Carolina. This southern capital still remembers its prominent role in the Civil War, honoring military leaders and soldiers with monuments across the city. And in the center of town is the Confederate Relic Room. Founded in 1896, it is home to a collection of period uniforms, tattered flags, and antique sidearms. But according to curator Joe Long, among these battle-scarred artifacts is one item that spawned a deep and mysterious legacy. Forged of steel, standard model 1850. It would have been 36 inches long at the time, but was dramatically sheared off. What happened to the sword? And what powers did it bestow upon the man who once wielded it? June 30th, 1862, Fraser's Farm, Virginia. With Confederate and Union soldiers locked in heated battle, Southern troops turned to one man, the 26-year-old Brigadier General Micah Jenkins. Micah Jenkins was regarded as a rising star of promise in South Carolina. As the commander of the Palmetto Sharpshooters, Jenkins has gained a reputation for bravery and valor. Micah Jenkins was dedicated to his men. It was his duty, his responsibility to lead them and to lead from the front. And that puts you in the thick of the fight. And in the midst of this battle, cannon fire and shrapnel fly directly at the young Brigadier General. His horse was killed. Even the bridle reins that he held in his hands were cut by shot. But as the dust settles, Jenkins emerges alive and unharmed. And it seems that his scabbard and sword protected him from enemy fire. The sword inside the scabbard had been sheared off cleanly by the canister shot. Micah credits his survival to something much greater than cunning skill or good fortune. Micah Jenkins would write home to his wife that he had been protected by the hand of Providence on the battlefield that day. Jenkins' battered scabbard and broken sword become a tangible symbol of this divine intervention. And with a Bible in one hand and his sword in another, he makes a bold prophecy. I cannot be killed by Yankee bullets. Jenkins' audacious claim is put to the test one month later when he's badly wounded at the Second Battle of Bull Run. But when he recovers and returns to the battlefield, rumors of his invulnerability spread throughout the ranks. Then, in January of 1864, Micah Jenkins leads his men to victory at the Battle of Kimsbrough Crossroads. Once more, he's in grave danger, but is apparently insensible to it and emerges completely unscathed. The legend of the sword's prophecy is now firmly solidified, burnishing Jenkins' reputation as a bold and, some say, invulnerable leader. But is the prophecy true? Has this battle-scarred sword really given Micah Jenkins the power to withstand Yankee bullets?
Virginia, 1864. A brigadier general in the Confederate Army named Micah Jenkins believes that his battered sword has the power to shield him against Yankee bullets. Now, as the Civil War reaches its climax, will Jenkins' unlikely claim be proved true? In May 1864, Confederate troops take on the Union at the Battle of the Wilderness. By midday, the units are spread throughout the dense Virginia forest. The fighting in the wilderness happened in very thick undergrowth. There's a lot of cover, but there's also a lot of confusion. During a lull in the fighting, Jenkins discusses strategy with General Joseph B. Kershaw as they attempt to regroup their scattered units. Then one of the men notices a discarded Union flag and picks it up as a trophy from the day's battle. Suddenly, the temporary calm of the wilderness is shattered. Micah Jenkins is hit directly in the head and falls to the ground. In the chaos, amidst the thick vegetation, it's almost impossible to tell where the shots came from and who fired them. The South Carolina riflemen prepare to return fire, but General Kershaw rides among them shouting, don't shoot, don't shoot their friends. The troops who have fired on them were a group of Confederates. Brigadier General Micah Jenkins, rising star of the Confederacy and the inspiring leader of the Palmetto Sharpshooters, is dead. The Palmetto Sharpshooters were shocked and dismayed that their beloved leader had been struck down. The valiant soldier, who famously stated that he could not be killed by Yankee bullets, was ultimately struck down by a Confederate shot leaving many to believe that his prophecy was, in fact, true. Today, this damaged scabbard and the sword that prompted a confident claim of invulnerability can be found in the Confederate relic room, an eerie sentinel of a prophecy that remains one of the enduring legends of America's Civil War. From a deadly poker chip to life-saving music, a celestial sword to a skin-crawling book. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.